When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to a very special edition of Out to Lunch, recorded live at the Cambridge Club Festival. And it really is a first. We recorded this episode on stage in front of a crowd whilst eating afternoon tea, no less. Hell of a spectator sport, that. Uh, my guest has been named the world's most famous classicist by some, is a national treasure to many and a controversial figure to a few. She is Professor of Classics at Cambridge University, has many books on the subject to her name, and has written and presented television series including Pompeii, Life and Death in a Roman Town, and Meet the Romans. It is, of course, Dame Professor Mary Beard. I did some of those things that you did in the 1970s that uh, we would frown upon. No, sex, drugs and rock and roll, yeah, sure. But most of my time in, in Cambridge, what I remember is the library, actually. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome uh, to the Orchard Stage here at the Cambridge Club Festival. Delighted you're here. So, without further ado, welcome for Out to Lunch, Professor Mary Beard. Come forward. We thought getting lunch onto the table at a festival might be a little bit difficult, so we decided to go for afternoon tea. Oh, yippee. I know. Yippee. Isn't it great? Listen, we normally have waiters and we have restaurants. <laughs> we have private dining rooms. So today, round of applause for Anya, who's bringing everything on. Oh, look on. at this. Look at that. Marvellous. Oh, wow. Um, do you take milk in your tea? Uh, please. Thank you, Anya. There's some tea. You'll also see there is a bottle of 10-year-old Malmsey. Oh, blimey. Who was it who drowned in a vat of oh, Malmsey? a king. And we also may have sounds off from the main stage where things are kicking off. Obviously, we're, do we're dealing with cake in quite significant amounts in this episode of Out to Lunch, which, and you'll love the segue here, played an important part in your career choice. Everybody loves an origin story, and you try to avoid <laughs> yeah. your own origin story, but you do have uh, an origin story yeah. involving cake, don't you? I do. When I was about five, and I came from Shropshire, my mum thought I ought to see London, I ought to see what capital city looks like. Because she was a primary school teacher, um, we had to go to the British Museum. I was very, very keen to see the Egyptian things, partly the mummies. We were going through the kind of Egyptian everyday life gallery, and I remember saying, oh, look, there's a, there's a piece of 3,000-year-old or 4,000-year-old Egyptian cake at the back of the case. And I thought, that's what I want to see. So, But, of course, the... The cake was too far away. I couldn't kind of peer over and see it. And a guy walked past, who I now realise must have been a curator, but I had no clue then. And he said, was there anything I was trying to look at, especially? And I said, you know, that bit of cake at the back, right? He reached into his pocket, he got keys out, he opened the case, he got the cake out of the case and put it right in front of me. He didn't actually let me touch it, but it was as close to that as you could be. And that was 
kind of mind-changing for me. And it was partly mind-changing because there, there it was, you know, the cake. It was amazing. It left me with the sense that museum cases were there. They were going to, someone would open them for you. Someone would take you into that. It wasn't going to be all just glassed off. There was access to this world and people were generous. I just wonder if actually it was a slightly false impression for a five-year-old because from reading about your way into academia, your experiences of being a young woman, studying, it wasn't always that opened a door. People weren't that friendly to young women working in classics, no. were they? For a time, when I was a, a young lecturer here, I was the only, only woman out of, I think, about 26 men teaching in the Faculty of Classics. It was a world quite different from now. It was tough. It was sexist. Um, it was also in a kind of funny way for... For the feisty, it was quite enjoyable. Because you could be angry and cross. Because you could be angry and cross, and you could be... I mean, I remember going occasionally to, when I was a graduate student, being invited to uh, dinner at um, High Table at some frightfully fusty old male college, and you'd sit down and you could almost guarantee that next to you there'd be some bloke who'd say, well, uh, I don't really think women should be in this college. You know, it was great because you'd say well I have to disagree with you there because I am one <laughs> because I am one and here I am and I look back to this with fondness I suppose because we sort of won you know that yeah. it was you know this was the beginning of a story in which women did come into these colleges but also there were there was kind of happy memories of these guys who first of all looked quite shocked when you disagreed with them they weren't used to that but once they got over the shock they'd really have a good argument with you and you'd go away and you'd think I haven't convinced that old fogey but we had a good discussion about something he won't think quite the same about my arguments as he used to. And actually, I've gone away with a slight kind of feeling of warmth to the old fogey slight, himself. Slight kind of feeling of warmth. Yeah, you know, so we both learned, I think. By the way, would you like a scone? Or are you oh, going... No, can I have another sandwich? You can, have, you can do what you like. God, I really, I'm, um, this is my lunch. Yeah. So, sorry, my It tea. is. It's called out to lunch. You also said that when you were 17, 18, the, the, the contemporaries, the young men, weren't really either interested in you and you weren't interested in them. No, wrong, that's true. So you went off and shagged a lot of men twice your age? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Jay, I couldn't have put it better myself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Was that also part of life at Cambridge? Because <laughs> I've been brought up on the campus novels, which tended to be red no. bricks. So we've got Malcolm Bradbury. No. And we've got David Lodge and all that sort no. of stuff. But was Cambridge like that as well? Was it a knocking shop is what I'm asking you. Well, it wasn't a knocking shop for me. Oh, I'm um, sorry. But I had plenty of knocking elsewhere. Oh, good. So, so it, was, <laughs> it was fine. I did some of those things that you, you did in the 1970s that uh, we would frown upon. You know, sex, drugs and rock and roll. Yeah, sure. But most of my time in, in Cambridge, what I remember is the library, actually. You know, I was discovering that you could explore the world of the ancient Greeks and Romans on your own. It was fun. There were bits you'd never been told about it. And there were other people who were doing it too. And then we'd go to the pub in the evening and we'd had 
you know, we'd have big arguments about, you know, the causes of the Catalinarian conspiracy. Now I think what a load of pretentious, you know, 19, 20-year-olds we were. But it was, for me, a kind of eye-opener. And you could mix that in with a bit of politics with, you know, the, I remember very fondly the nursery action group, you know, because one of the things we wanted in the 70s was to ensure that there was childcare for lecturers and students who who had kids you know and we you know there's certainly not enough of it now but blimey back then there was nothing you know and the nursery action group and chaining yourself to the railings outside the center did you house. chain yourself to no railings? i didn't do no. chaining myself but I, I i was with them in spirit <laughs> <laughs> you know it was the tail end of second wave feminism you said there was sort of a choice were you a Jermaine greer reader or was that kate millet reader yeah. Yeah. And you were definitely Greer at the time, but now I think you might have mm. quite enjoyed Millet as well. Uh, the female unit made the most amazing difference to me. It was really the first time I saw that feminism was about everyday life. Feminism was suddenly about me. It was about um, what I did with my body and what I didn't do and, and how people treated my body, etc. And it wasn't actually until Kate Millet died that... I, I picked up sexual politics again, and I thought, blimey, this is really good. And I think I missed out a bit by not thinking about, you know, Kate Millett more than Greer. But in the end, I mean, what was exciting was that there was so much then to read that was actually really new. You know, I was at a women's college in Cambridge and there was lots of feminist groups and, you know, you, how could you not think about position of women in a university when there was only just over 10% of you? But the ideas were all fresh to me. You know, I feel very grateful that, that I was in a context in which I could sort of enjoy them. Now, you're still going on your sandwiches. Yeah, I am yeah. going to go, go for, for a... Sc- I'm going to go scone or scone. Well, These say, are the important questions. I say scone, but... Mm, I yeah. say scone. Um, and the really important question... Jam or cream first? Oh, jam first, and then pour the cream on top. I mean... You see, but I see that... I'm I'm now going to ignore you, even though you have letters before and after your name. Um, Actually, I'm going to do a vote. Cream first, First? hands in the air. Jam first. Oh, you see. All right, I have to go with the bloody majority, don't I? Mind you, I mean, so jam first won that vote. I mean, democracy hasn't really got us anywhere in this country, has it? I mean, actually, that's an interesting question. What do you think the Romans would make of the experiments with democracy that we've experienced recently, the election of Trump, of Brexit? I I think they'd probably say, told you so, because the Romans were not, by and large, great Democrats. The Athenians, the 5th century Athenians, who were invested in democracy, I think would say... Well, that just shows what happens when you have elections, because the 5th century Athenian version of democracy thought that elections were terrible. If you really wanted a democratic process in which we were all equal, you chose people by lot. You know? Um, What, you literally pulled straws? Yes, yeah, that's right. And they'd say, well, look, you know, you can never trust an election, can you? Well, they didn't like elections because elections can always be skewed in favour of the rich because even if you're not actually bribing people... Yeah. Um, you have got a way of buying advertising space um, or, 
you know, you can take the rhetorical training, you can have the expensive advisors. And in the end, you know, we, we've come terribly, terribly committed to seeing that free and fair elections are the mark of a Democrat. Well, fifth century Athens, it was free and fair drawing of a lot that was the mark of a Democrat. And do you think that's what we should possibly experiment with? We have the electronics to do it? <laughs> Everybody could get pinged and it would just say, ping, you are yeah. now an MP. Well, the thing is, we do do it in some cases. You see, so we're, we're absolutely used to the idea that juries in criminal yeah. um, cases are chosen by lot. We don't find that a problem. We're actually more invested in random choice than we think kind of citizens' assemblies and citizens' discussion groups, which have been tried with real real success um, in places like the Republic of Ireland, you know, we might, we might find that randomness has got its, got its points. Right, so if um, various bits of the media are now listening to this and are looking for a top line, Mary Beard says, stop elections, let's randomly pick people. Yeah, for yeah. Is that OK by you? Is that... Uh... I would say, as usual, yeah. <laughs> when people come into a discussion, as you know, media headline writers are always desperate to do, to you know, draw out a soundbite, to go on social media for clickbait, they would be oversimplifying what I believe to be a more complicated argument. One of the things people tend to do is they look at the end of someone's career and assume that's where it started. So you are a successful, well-known, you know, you're on TV, you, do, you publish books, they're very successful, you, you jokingly are called Britain's best-known classicist and all that, but you've got a, a public profile. But when you got into academia, was that part of the ambition? At one moment in my mid-50s, by chance, I got offered the chance to be on telly by Janice Hadlow, who was then the controller of BBC Two. And she was looking for real historians to present history programmes. And she was also looking for more women who weren't sort of under 25. And she happened to have read my book on Pompeii on her holiday. And she thought, oh, that would make a good TV programme. And so I, I, she asked me to come and see her, and, and you know, you don't, I was curious, of course I was going to say yes. But I'd heard about telly, and I knew, and I was absolutely right, you know, telly is terribly, terribly time-consuming. It takes roughly a, a month's full-time work to make an hour's documentary. Janice said, look, w would you do a programme on Pompeii? Can I just say that while you're talking about Pompeii, Burn Baby Burn is playing off the main stage, which is absolutely... Uh, we planned <laughs> So she asked you if you would do a series and about Pompeii. I say, look, I think it's... I don't think I've got the time, you know. I've, you know, I'm, I'm pretty busy. I've got a full-time job. I also said, and A.A. Gill will, will, will hate it, but I was absolutely right there, because he did hate did it. Did you genuinely, at that point, pinpoint the late A.A. Gill of the Sunday Times, who would over time, you know, I knew Adrian, I, I liked him in many ways, but he had a woman problem, he really did. <laughs> Um, and that's why I'm glad I only did telly when I was in my 50s, because it didn't bother me, really. But, but Janice then said, look, I have read you writing, and she was absolutely right, um, saying 
that something terrible about television, that if you're a wrinkly old bloke, you can do as much telly as you like. You can present documentaries, interview people. If you're a wrinkly old woman, you're off the screen. Now, I am offering you the chance to put some of that right in a little way. You're not going to tell me you're not going to do it because that is rank hypocrisy. <laughs> then I thought, well, I've been snookered. So I said, OK, I will... Um, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a go. And some people like Gil really hated it, but there were other people who liked it. And so I've been very pleased to have the opportunity of talking to more people than I could possibly talk to as a Don in Cambridge. While you scoop your jam onto your scone first, <laughs> do what you like, it's your, it's your tea. Um, I think I'm going to swap in the next round of tea because we have tears. Oh, We've done nice. this properly, so I mean, we can leave the sandwiches and scones on here. Yes, leave, like. leave them there because um, because they're a good thing. Yeah. Oh, so <laughs> the thing that's actually just caught Bliss. Mary Bid's attention um, are these. So our tea is brought to us today by Fitzbillies in Cambridge, which has been a major institution for decades and decades and decades. Recently taken over by actually a mate of mine, Tim Hayward, who's also one of the panelists on the Kitchen Cabinet, which is the Radio Four show I do. And it's famed for its Chelsea buns, which are a confection of syrup and type 2 diabetes. They are absolutely... When was the last time you had a Fitzbillies Chelsea bun? It must be well over a decade ago. 15 years ago, when I was a student, I lived on them because when you're a student, you can consume 10 Chelsea buns with no obvious effect. You know, apart from you feel a bit full. Um, uh, and as you get older, you think, oh, God, you know. Can you? Yeah. They are mm. an extraordinary thing. So mm. they're, a, they're curled and turned on themselves, full of currants. And I know full well that they spend a lot of time in a sugar syrup. Well, I can say, actually, you're stuffing the scone in your mouth because you've now got an excuse to eat a Chelsea bun. Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. One of the things you referred to is you said, you know, you can never be absolutely sure that the headline writers <laughs> will take a complex argument and actually give it the, the respect and sophistication it deserves. And there's a, a bit of me as a long-time hack, I've been a print journalist for 30-whatever years, who wonders whether that isn't the fault of the academic, that you come from an academic milieu where you deal in sophisticated arguments and think that you can just get it across 
into the public discourse. It's all going to be fine. Well, it might be. I think it's a kind of unattractive feature of people like me to blame the media when they don't like the headline, you know? Mm. But, but I do think that quite often you, you want to have a complicated, sometimes humorous, sometimes ironic uh, discussion in public, teasing out some arguments, sometimes pushing it a bit too far, drawing back. You want to have a kind of a, a discussion, right? When you say pushing it too far, are you actively happy to be a provocateur then? Do I think of myself as a provocateur? Am I happy to be? No. I think that when you're trying to pin complicated things down, one of the things that you do is you parade the limits, you you go a bit far, you draw back, you come in, because that's the way of trying to home in on what you think is important. We shouldn't let that be sacrificed for the sake uh, of a headline. Well, we're gonna, I'm going to hone in on one. You know exactly which one I'm going to hone in on because it's 20 years. And I think, I might be wrong in this, but I think it was one of your very first experiences of this. Um, three weeks after 9-11, the LRB, London Review of Books, published a piece of yours, which I believe had been written literally three days after the yeah. Twin Towers had gone down. Yeah. And you expressed a view, which was that they were in certain circles, it was seen as if... America had it coming. That was what was pulled out of it. Um, and there was a storm. There was an enormous storm. And you, you've been very yeah. clear that you were not saying that people in the Twin Towers deserved yeah. to die. Yeah, I was. I mean, I said it was shocking and terrible. My point was that it was one of the consequences, in part, of Western foreign policy, not just American, but Western foreign policy. If you upset a lot of people by what you say, you've probably at least got how you said it wrong, right? I mean, if you think, I didn't mean to upset them, but I have, you can't just blame them for misunderstanding you. Right, yeah. so there is a, a failure of communication there on your part. There is a failure of communication, and, you, I mean, and you've got to plead guilty to that. I, I don't think that the basic point I was wanting to make, though didn't make well enough or appropriately enough, which is that terrorism has got roots in Western foreign policy. That's something I would still uphold. And I think if I sort of agree with the point, but see that I got how it was said wrong, why did I get it so wrong? And I think uh, the answer to that, I think, comes in the timing, actually. That I, I wrote that immediately afterwards. Um, and Were you emotional at the time when you wrote it? Yeah, well, I think everybody was, and I think it it produced, to say the least, rhetorically suboptimal comments. And, and at the very <laughs> rhetorically least, rhetorically suboptimal comments. But at the very least, mine was rhetorically suboptimal. At the time I wrote it, we didn't have a clue how to talk about it, and I was one of the people who didn't have a clue. And the rhetoric hadn't settled, and I don't know if you remember that week, but there was a famous um, ep episode, edition of, of Question, Question Time, Time yeah. where, you know, where, where, where I said, look, pretty, 
mild, actually. I remember that. I think the American ambassador was on well, it and almost left in tears. Almost left in tears. Did you take lessons from that experience? Because as we said, you're really good at a controversial statement uh, and you're really good at a row. And I say that admiringly. Um, and, and did you look at that and think, well, that's not necessarily the best way to do it? Uh, w- within that, those, those very few weeks, it, you know, things moved so quickly. Indeed, uh, they did, yeah. And the, so it was quite hard to sort of position yourself and, and to see what was right and what was wrong. And some of the people who objected to me said really extreme things too. I mean, we were, you know, and I wouldn't blame them a minute. We were all trying to find a way of talking about this and explaining it. And I think now, um, you know, I get into scrapes from time to time. Yeah, but you, you engage with those scrapes. Anybody yeah. who's, who's sort of quite noisy on social media knows what it's like to get slagged off. Go for a oh. go for a Chelsea bun, and I just hope that I can manage to get all the conversation out of you before you oh, slip God, before into a coma. I, coma. Yeah. When I first found myself being attacked on social media, I mean, I did, I did for a minute follow the advice that I was given, which was back then. I think mute didn't happen. It was block them, block them, don't give them the oxygen of publicity. And so I did for a bit, and then I felt, look, they're saying things about me and misunderstanding me, you know, I need to respond to. If I heard them say that in the back room of a pub, I'd go up and I'd say, sorry, you misunderstood, you know. I, I wouldn't just walk out. Um, so I started to politely answer back and to say, no, if you read what I said, it wasn't exactly that, and no, Think about it this way, and or, you know, I think we're going to disagree about this, but it doesn't mean I'm stupid. You know, I might be wrong. You know, it's perfectly conceivable that I am wrong. But one thing I think I'm not is stupid, right? And so I kind of got a bit braver about doing this, and I haven't regretted it at all. And I've met people through responding in a way that has been constructive. It's, you know, I mean, when you say you've met them, you've done more than just had an exchange on Twitter. <laughs> you've exchanged emails. Have you actually gone out and, you know, had a cup of tea with some of them? There was one lad who said things I couldn't possibly repeat. Um, you can, it's a podcast. You can say anything. <laughs> he said, as I recall, my private parts smelt of a nasty vegetable. Um, and <laughs> It's not hardly Oscar Wilde, is it? <laughs> And it was, a, 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 in, in some ways, a nice encounter. It had a nasty end. There was a bit of a Twitter storm. Somebody said, oh, I know that lad. I know his mum. She'll stop him. And indeed, I think she probably did. You know, he was 18 or 19. He was on holiday. He wrote and apologised and said he'd like to take me out to lunch. So we had lunch together in Cambridge. Was he a nice kid? When you yeah, met him? Yes, you know, he, um, he'd been on holiday. You know, I, we can all guess what he might possibly have overconsumed. Um, and he was disinhibited. And, you know, look, I've, you know, I've had kids of that age, you know, and I know what they can say. I've got students of that age, and I know what they do. And the idea that somehow you'd hold that against them forever without, you know, say, sorry, just can you say sorry and let's talk about it. All good, very nice, happy ending story. Except that 
um, the newspapers found this quite interesting mm. and they tracked him down oh dear. and right. all okay. the rest. And a few months later, when he was graduating and had been offered a job, the job offer was then withdrawn because they'd done a Google search for him oh God. and found this. Um, I wrote to the firm and said, uh, it was quite fine, he'd apologised, he'd done everything you could expect, it was an error, don't hold it against him. By that stage, they decided to withdraw the job offer. So that for the next one, he, when I wrote him a reference, I thought, it's the only... You know, what else, what else can you do? I've got to get in there first and to say, you know, you will find this. And the fact that I'm writing a reference shows that he's been a, you know... And did he get that job? He got either that or the next one that I did the same. So, you know, and he's now off being an upstanding citizen. But it's also a lesson in how these things are not just about you. No, that's They're about right. other people. No, that's right. Uh, how's your first Chelsea bun from Fitzbillies in... Blimey. Over 15 years. Blimey. I mean, it's... Uh, it, it is a bit of a hit of sugar, it's isn't it? It's a hit. It's a sugar hit, isn't it? It is. Blimey. I think we should bring on the next tiers of... Oh, um, well, it's afternoon tea. You've got to do it properly. I think what was hilarious is just before we came on, um, Mary did say, do I get champagne? I said, no, you get Madeira. Which I think was, oh, if we just drop that one there, it will stand, I'm sure. There you go. God, those, so, those look lovely, but... Are you, are you claiming there's a sugar overdose in the, in the Chelsea bun and you don't have space for a macaron, a brownie or a little fruit tart? Which I know Tim Haywood put these together for Fitzbillies all by himself. <laughs> all right. I'll see what happens when I finish. I'm not going to leave the Chelsea bun. OK, you go for the Chelsea bun and I will do honours to the meringues and so forth. You've got a new book out. I have. Um, 12 Seasons. Yep. Which looks at the way 12 great rulers have been interpreted through their images. Yeah. It says, look, put it in kind of personal terms. You go to a museum, you go to a country house, you know, you can go to Wimpole up the road and you can bet your bottom dollar there will be a lineup of probably busts, but maybe paintings of the first 12 Roman emperors from Julius Caesar to Domitian. And most of us just walk past them. And what the book does is try to say, look, I think, you know, I don't look at them very much either, but let's, let's think about why people have been so interested in parading in their country houses, in their town squares, wherever, in parading uh, images of 12 extremely nasty, if we believe the stories about sure. them, individual tyrants. Why are we so interested in Roman emperors? And can we actually, if we start to look at them a bit harder, if we start to spot them in paintings and wonder what's being said about them, you know, do they actually become more interesting. You don't need to know almost any Roman history to do this. A lot of the art between the 15th century and the 20th century just gets more curious, interesting, challenging. I hope it changes the way you look at some of this. What, what struck me at, at, at my reading of the book is how it also has ramifications for a very live issue now, which is arguments going on in Cambridge, going on in Oxford, going on everywhere about our 
statues of, of yeah. great people who it yeah. turns out may be yeah. fair steeped in blood. Yeah. What's, your, what's your view? Do we tear them down? Do we put notes on them? There hasn't been a time in the history of the world when statues of people we no longer liked were not taken down. The Romans did it, everybody has done it. You know, the idea that somehow um, to remove a statue or to kind of turn its face to the wall or to do what... Is it a noble tradition? It's a noble tradition. You know, what the Romans tended to do actually was rather more ingenious. They got an emperor they don't much like just died, got a new emperor. Well, what do you do? Take a chisel out and you recut the face so that it's suddenly the new emperor. When Colston was thrown into the water in Bristol, did you watch that with, well, I never... What a, what a marvellously historically literate thing <laughs> for the mob to be doing. I, I felt... I sort of felt pleased about Colston, not because... Well, because of his history as a slaver? It was slightly different, really. It was because that it was very clear to me that, that there had been a lot of uh, debate, a lot of opposition, but the local council didn't seem to be doing anything. Uh, there were all kinds of different things you could have done, different suggestions like putting somebody else up next to him, changing the label or whatever, but it had reached an impasse. And I thought, I just think sometimes... If people take things into their own hands, that's, in a sense, what's got to happen. I think that there are many, many different things that you can do. I think that what working on Roman emperors made, why it made me think a bit differently, was really that we've fallen into the idea that the Statues in the public realm are solely about, of and about people we admire. Now, you can't work for 10 years, as I did, on statues of modern statues of Roman emperors and say statues are always about people you admire. They have a very different discursive role in the way we think about us, about our history, and I think about our future. I mean, I, one statue that I'm always very struck by is a statue of Charles I outside Charing Cross looking down Whitehall to where he was executed. And I don't think that I look at that statue thinking that Charles I was a, was a sad martyr who had the right answer for Britain. I think he's a, an important memory about what sacrifices you have to have for progress, that sometimes, you know, you have to execute the monarch in order to move on. Even if they're originally put up in celebratory mode, I think they do make us think about ourselves a bit more. Are there any in Cambridge that you pass on a regular basis and wince at? What I tend to do is put two fingers up to them. So what, what have you been flying the bees at and recently <laughs> in Cambridge? I tell you, they're not so much in Cambridge okay. because... Um, the, the ones I think about, as if you walk around central London, you know, and you go down somewhere near Pall Mall, you can, there's, there's loads of guys sort of hiding in the trees, people you've never heard of, blokes, they're always blokes, you know, and underneath there's often a, a, a plaque saying that how they, uh, and we know what this means, don't we? Um, they saved some bit of the British Empire. I mean, you know, and we know what that's a euphemism for. What and, went in, raped, pillaged it, yeah, killed most of the locals afraid, and you know, stole all their minerals. Afraid, yeah, yeah. I, I think I'm gonna, uh, this comes in two parts, and the second part is important. Okay, I'm paying attention. I, um, 
I tend to look at those guys, I look them in the eye, and I say, it's a bit like the old fogies who used to be around Cambridge when I was a student. I say, you never wanted me to have the vote, did you? You know, you know, but you were wrong. You know, you're up there and you're a symbol of your own wrongness. And I won, right? You might be on your bloody pedestal, but I won. And they kind of cheer me up because I think you, you're on the losing side, you guys who are there in bronze or marble. Now, and I think that's very important and I get quite a kick out of it. I, mean, I think we've got to recognise that I can say that because, in a sense, I have one. Yes. I'm not a victim. I'm, I, I'm not actually directly a victim well, of Well, them. I was about to say, if you are from a group that feels that's, you are suffering that, from a... History exactly. of slavery. No, exactly, and that's why it's a complicated. That's why it's a complicated issue, because I, you know, I've got the, I've got the current cultural power, to be able to say it's me that's the winner, it's you that's the loser, and I, I, I think that's an important reaction to sustain, but I'm not sure that you can universalise it, and uh, that's why I think you have to think about all kinds of different ways that you can remove some. Look, I'm very happy to remove some, um, but also to, you know, to, make them, to make them talk to us in a different way. I think one of the nice things you can do is you can take them off their pedestals, you know, put them on ground level. You so know, they walk among us. Walk among us, you know. Uh, if they get hurt, it doesn't really matter. Um, um, so I think that we've, we've got, and it, you know, this is part, not the fault of social media, but it's part of the sort of the social media standoff and outrage. It, there's a kind of, there's a sort of binary, you know, either take them down or leave them up and admire them. Much as many things you can do. And I, don't, I think it's, it's I, I don't want a public sphere in which the only people I see are those that have been passed as wholly admirable, in statue form, that is. Next year, you are retiring. Are you retiring as, a, as an academic? I mean, academics never really retire. They just change their titles and go on. And I'm sure there will be a succession of mighty dinners in, in colleges and things like that. Will you take the title emeritus, Professor? Uh, if I'm offered it, yes, I will. And I think that, I mean, I'm giving up teaching. I'm giving up having power in my own institution. Uh, and I think that's a jolly good thing. I think partly it's a jolly good thing because I've done it for 40 years and, you know, time to move on. Um, I also think it's a jolly good thing because, you know, there's young people waiting to get into the profession and people like me shouldn't be bed blockers. You were one of, you know, the only one among 26 men. It's different now. Do you think you've had an impact on what academic life looks like in Cambridge? Or is there still an awful lot of work still to be done? Well, I think both of those are true. I mean, I think that there's an awful lot of work still to be done and that, you know, if ever we thought we'd got the university perfect, we'd, we'd be bound to be wrong, you know? There are always different things it needs to do differently. Look currently at diversity, for example, we want, obviously. I think I played my part. Um, but it's never a it's never a one woman operation. Social, educational, political change, even in a university, is about activism together. 
not, you know, one woman doesn't make much of a difference, but with her mate, she does. I can't imagine you quietly retiring. <laughs> you know, while, while I'm still kind of, still feeling fire in my bones, I'm going to blaze away. But, so there will be a bit more telly, I fear, I warn you. Um, <laughs> sorry about that. But you but, like it, though. It's a skill that I didn't ever imagine that I would learn to have. So it's, um, you know, I learned something new in, in you know, when I was 55 and older, and that's quite fun. Now, we're, we're, we're close to winding up here, um, and we've sat here at this table with our lovely oh, tiered cake stands. Um, and you're still working your way through a Chelsea bun. <laughs> Listen, um, thank you for agreeing to have you, come out to lunch with me. Out to lunch. Or out to tea, out to afternoon tea. A special episode of Out to Lunch called... You go to, to sleep if you have too much of this. Well, you know? yeah, that's true. If you keep sucking the Madeira, that's that's the rest of your day gone. I think... Um, but for now, ladies and gentlemen, Dame Professor Mary Beard. <laughs> Marvellous. Thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. Well, a hearty thank you to Professor Mary Beard and her new book is called 12 Caesars and is available now. And a massive thank you to Tim Haywood of Fitzbillies in Cambridge for the magnificent afternoon tea. If you haven't tried their legendary Chelsea buns, you really should. They're even available mail order from fitzbillies.com. Uh, and speaking of wonderful spreads, we have a selection of fantastic guests coming up. So do follow us uh, to get your new episodes as they arrive. Also, we'd love it if you would share this with everyone you know. Comment, give us five stars. You know, it makes sense. It does help us to make more. Um, Out to Lunch is a Something Else and Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner, and Robert Rickenberg. The recording engineer was Paul Brogdon and the mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. Assistant producers are Anya Das and Bethany Hocken. The producer is Selena Reem and the executive producer is Darby Doris. Next time, it's the Booker Prize winning author, Bernadine Evaristo. It was only when I won the Booker that suddenly I didn't mind telling everybody about my life, or even even in the builds up, build up to it, when when Girl Woman Other was published, I was suddenly I was talking about my age, I was talking about my, you know, my sexuality, which had changed and so on, and I just didn't care. I really didn't care who knew. <laughs>